to be uh, South Bay brothers and sisters. Good afternoon to you. Uh, great to be able to worship God together, uh, be able to sing songs. And I hope you're grateful to be at church today. I hope you are. I hope, uh, I hope you're, you're having a great day. Even if you're not having a great day, I trust that God will move uh, through scriptures to encourage you by the time you leave uh, this afternoon. Let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that uh, we can approach you. You are the star. You are our audience. Uh, you are the one that we absolutely want to draw close to and know and walk with. Thank you for sparing our lives. Thank you for giving us money and possessions and material wealth. Help us to manage it effectively to your glory. Father, thank you for forgiving us and giving us the life that we have as disciples of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Very thankful for uh, the, the opportunity just to be with you. Thankful for the team that we have here in coastal L.A. Uh, and what God has developed here throughout the region. Uh, very thankful to work with uh, the Marichis, uh, the Craigs, uh, definitely the uh, Palazzeris, and just thankful for... Uh, all, uh, all that you continue to do for the Lord. I, I even, uh, you know, the, the good news of having a special contribution, uh, how all of us responded in a tremendous way. And uh, that, it really is to God's glory. And uh, as disciples, we'll continue sacrificing for the rest of our lives because we know that God will take care of us uh, in heaven forever. Amen, brothers and sisters. Uh, I am thankful that we are going over the principles of Crown Financial especially in our family group. This is the first time that I'm going through these principles uh, with, uh, with the disciples as well as to the family group. And I'm, I'm hearing some great, just great reports on how the discussions are very, very lively and, and couples are getting open with where they're at. Uh, and uh, very thankful that, uh, you know, we have this opportunity. And if you're not part of a, a family group, I really want to encourage you to be part of one. Uh, these are principles that will help you not only now, but for the rest of your life. And I really believe all of us desire financial freedom, where we don't have any debt. Can you imagine if you had no debt? I'm not talking about you have bills. you got you got bills still because you're still alive, but you just have no debts, no car debt, no house debt, no mortgage. I mean, that would be incredible to think that you could be freed up with what God has given you so that... You can continue living what God intended you to do. Uh, that's phenomenal. And again, these principles that we're learning uh, with Crown Financial will help us. Uh, I want to encourage all of us to, to really take the opportunity to change our attitude towards money, towards possessions, getting out of debt, spending, learning to live off less, uh, even having a budget, not on paper, but a living budget. Something that's active in your life. Uh, it does no good if it's just on paper and you're not following it. You've got to have that living budget. My wife and I have a, a living budget. And we've, uh, I'm very thankful. We, my wife and I probably talk about finances in a good way uh, just about every day. Uh, knowing you know, what we've spent, how we've itemized it and so forth. I mean, uh, we know exactly how much money uh, we have to spend on groceries every month. Uh, we, uh, we have a budget for uh, dates. Uh, that convicts me. I need to take my wife out more on dates. Uh, we've got a, a budget for our electricity bill, for our cell phone bill, uh, for water, 
uh, for you know uh, dry cleaning if we do that, uh, haircuts. Uh, uh, we we have budgets and it's living. It's living and active with the Bible. It's living and active in our lives. And uh, again, uh, I want to encourage all of us to to make these types of changes uh, because it's going to help you not only for now, but it's going to help you for the future. And I really wish that Son and I. Uh, not only knew these principles, but practiced these principles 22 years ago when we first got married. Uh, we'd be at a different spot. Absolutely, we'd be at a different spot. I think decisions we would have made would have been very, very different. Uh, I'm thankful that God has taken care of us over these years. Um, let me just clarify a, a couple things here, too. Um, especially when we've done financial things in the church. I've heard... Uh, different comments of, of why are we doing this? Is it because the church wants more money? The answer is no. It's not about money. It's not about money, brothers and sisters. We realize, and I hope we all realize, that we all need help in this area of our lives. And we, we, because if we don't learn to manage what God has given us, our, our money, our wealth, our possessions, then we are going to be handicapped to do what God has intended us to do. And so if we don't learn these life skills now, then it's going to, it's going to hinder us the rest of our lives. And so it's not about money. It's about pleasing God. It's about giving God our heart. Learning how to handle money. And, uh, you know, the topic of money, honestly, brothers and sisters, I'm very grateful we're talking about it because uh, the topic of money needs to be brought out of the shadows. It cannot be a taboo topic in the church. And I've even noticed, and I've felt it, being supported by the church and what's happened with our fellowship over the last several years, whether we're supported by the church or not supported by the church, we cannot... Be shy about talking about money. We've got to be able to be empowered to talk about it. Why? Because God talks about it. Uh, Jesus talks so much about money. There are 2,350 verses that talk about money. That's more combined than what Jesus talks about faith and prayer. There are 38 parables in the Bible. 19 of them talk about money and possessions. Jesus was not shy about talking about money or possessions. So, we shouldn't be either. And my vision in the church is that we'll be able to talk about finances and where we're really at within the relationships that really can help us. And that it won't be, you know, taboo or, you know, in the dark or... No, because if it remains in the dark and you're not doing well, then you're not going to really change and you're not going to get the help that you need. So, brothers and sisters, I I really want to appeal to all of us. See this as a spiritual, spiritual issue. And then as a fellowship, as a family, we can head in the direction of being open with our finances. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about three things. Hopefully you were able to pick up uh, my sermon notes as you came in, because I'm going to be using these sermon notes as a a guide for us, and it will help you with the scriptures that I use, and you can fill in the blanks, you can write notes, 
uh, whatever, whatever hits you. I, I hope that you just take away at least one thing today that you can grab onto, that you can be inspired to change, uh, be inspired to uh, be different for the Lord. But the title is House in Order. House in Order. And I really believe if we're, if our house is going to be in order, then we have to understand some biblical truths about money. How does God view money and wealth and possessions in our life? The first thing I want to talk about is what we hope wealth will bring. What we hope wealth will bring. Because if we had more money, I think our natural attitude, that'd be nice. That'd be nice if we had more money than we have now. And it's our hope that wealth would bring certain things, qualities, uh, into our life. Number one, what we hope wealth will bring, many believe that it's going to bring more satisfaction. If you have more money, you're going to be more satisfied. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 simply says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. The common thought is, if I have more money, I'll be more happy. But the challenge there is that sometimes your, your yearning power is greater than your earning power. And it supersedes what you're making. And then all of a sudden, whoa, I'm in debt, I'm in trouble. And we think that just having more money is going to make us happy. If, if that were true, then it means that the wealthiest people in the world should be the happiest people in the world. And that is absolutely, absolutely not true. We live in Southern California. This is Hollywood capital of the world. You can read the latest tabloids and how the celebrities are doing in their lives. You can read how athletes are doing in their lives, and they're pretty well paid. More money does not equate to satisfaction. More money does not equate to happiness, the happiness that you need in your life. Another common myth about wealth, of what we think and hope that wealth will bring. Number two is more significance. More significance. If I get wealthy, then people will respect me. They'll look up to me. I'll have power. I'll have status. I'll have prestige. I can buy all those little status things that prop up my self-esteem. People can think that I'm really cool because I'm more wealthy. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 in the Good News Bible. Jesus says, A man's true life is not made up of the things he owns, no matter how rich he may be. Jesus says, Your net worth and your self-worth are not even related. He doesn't care how much you acquire in this world. Bottom line, he doesn't really care how much you've acquired, you possess, you've done. What God cares most of all is for our soul. It's for our heart. And it doesn't really matter all the toys that you acquire in this world. 
The world is going after those things and we feel the temptation towards the world, towards to fit in, but God never called us to fit in. In our life, in our thinking. It doesn't make you more significant because you have a bigger checkbook. Number three, what's another hope that we have that wealth will bring? More security. More security. Proverbs 23, verse 5 in the Good News Bible says, Your money can be gone in a flash, as if it had grown wings and flown away like an eagle. Isn't that true? That is true. You can lose money overnight. Uh, Next time you take out a dollar bill, look in the back of your dollar bill. There's an eagle on the back of your dollar bill. It's just going to fly away. It's just going to fly away. That's what money does. That's what the Bible says. God knows. He knows exactly what's going to happen. We cannot, as disciples of Christ, put our greatest satisfaction, our greatest significance, even our greatest security on money and possessions, things that will not last. They are fading. They are gone. Here today, gone tomorrow. You cannot put your greatest joy and foundation of life on those things. Your greatest joy and foundation must be based on God who's eternal. That's it. And when we figure that out and we anchor ourselves to God and not let the world trouble us that way, then we're, we're going to be clear sailing a lot better when we're founded and grounded on the Lord. Okay, so we know what we hope that wealth will bring us. Those aren't very good things. Because wealth, wealth's not going to bring us those eternal fulfillments that we need. Number two, what does wealth really bring? This is what wealth really brings according to the Bible. Number one, more expenses. More expenses. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 11. The more money you have, the more money you spend. Right up to the limits of your income. Isn't that amazing? The more you make, the more you spend. And you go, wow, I don't have enough. But you just got to raise. Well, I, I spend it all. I spend it all. As the income goes up, so do the expenses. It always costs more to have more. If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, you can bet the water bill is higher too. Because there's always maintenance. You buy a bigger car, the tires cost more. I drive a little Echo. I'm fired up to go into Costco and see it's one of the cheapest tires to get. I'm excited about that. Because I look down that, that shelf and I go, whoa, that's more than a car payment right there. But when you buy bigger things, more things, it just costs more to maintain it, upkeep it, put gas in it, water it, whatever. The more things you have, the more it costs. And so, what wealth really brings is more expenses. More expenses. Secondly, what's another thing that wealth brings, really brings? Number two is more worries. You worry more. 
The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 in the Good News Version. A working man can get a good night's sleep, but the rich man has so much that he stays awake worrying. You know, I mean, someone who's got a lot of money, how do I save it? How do I protect it? Uh, how the stock market do? Up, down? Uh, we, we, we worry a lot more. The Bible says that a worker, you know, he, he doesn't worry. He doesn't worry at night. He gets a good night's sleep. I mean, he, he, he finishes his job. He kind of punches out the clock. He leaves his work behind. He goes home. He... Uh, uh, pets his dog, he has a little dinner, he plays with his kids, and then he goes to bed like a little baby. But he's at peace. He's at peace. He's at financial peace, or he's at, he's just at peace. But the guy who strives to continue wanting to make more and more and more money, bad motivations, and not motivated by God, that's the person who worries. That's the person who's frustrated. That's the person who gets, you know, discouraged, depressed. Uh, that's what happens. As income increases, so does insomnia. That's what the Bible says. Solomon told us that about 5,000 years ago. You make more, and these are the possible consequences of what wealth will really bring. More worries. Thirdly, what wealth will really bring is more pain if it's lost. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 14 through 17 in the Good News says, Risky investments turn sour, and soon there's nothing left. It's all swept away the rest of his life. He's under a cloud, gloomy, discouraged, frustrated, and angry. Uh, you know, it's no big deal if you lose a little bit of money. But if you lose a lot of money, then it's a bigger deal. And the Bible tells us, wow, when, when it's gone, it can be painful. We can become gloomy people, discouraged people, uh, depressed people, frustrated, angry. And there's, there's a lot of that going on in our world today. Where a lot of people have depended on this deal going through, and this increasing, and this working, and this working... And you know what? It doesn't all work. It doesn't all work. Not just outside the church, but also inside the church. And God is teaching us some very valuable lessons. We cannot depend on the world for eternal fulfillment. You cannot do that. You cannot build your house on sand. And it's going to shift. And it's going to be destroyed. And it's going to fall. You've got to have a biblical perspective, a godly perspective to navigate through your life. You know, I want to share right now um, some, some, uh, some stories about some lottery winners. So I've got a, a few illustrations here about some lottery winners. And they, you know, they won the lottery. And to, what happened in their lives? The first person here, his name is Jeffrey Dampierre. He and his wife won $20 million back in 1996. And he used the winnings to help his family out by buying them houses and the like. That's, that's a great thing. He also started a gourmet popcorn store in Tampa, Florida, which performed quite well and provided jobs for his family. But in July 2005, Dampier went to visit his sister-in-law and her boyfriend when she claimed she had car troubles. 
Her boyfriend pulled a pistol on Dampier, and the two kidnapped him and killed him. They were ultimately convicted in 2006 and received life sentences for their crimes. The next picture here. Evelyn Adams. In the mid-80s, Evelyn Adams won the lottery twice. Once in 1985 and again in 1986 to defy all odds against her. The New Jersey native won a cool $5.4 million, but was a heavy gambler. And with Atlantic City being located in New Jersey, it wasn't long before Adams had lost all her money. Today she now lives in a trailer park and she is flat broke. The next one here, 1988, William Bud Post won $16.2 million jackpot in the Pennsylvania State Lottery. That was the start of his problems. An ex-girlfriend sued him for a share of the winnings and won. His brother hired a hitman to try to kill him hoping to inherit some winnings. And the other relatives bugged him constantly for money. Within one year, Post was a million dollars in debt and filed for bankruptcy. He now lives on food stamps and a $450 a month stipend. This next young girl here, Callie Rogers, won $3 million in the UK lottery. This ecstatic 16-year-old spent her winnings on vacations, homes, shopping, and friends. Six years later, Rogers is a 22-year-old single mother of two. She now works as a maid to sustain herself and her family. She's paying off her debt, induced by her spending. Today, she has this to say about her winnings. My life is in shambles. And hopefully now that the money is all gone, I can find some happiness. It's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. This last gentleman here, Billy Bob Harold Jr., Billy Bob. He won the Texas Lottery. He's a Pentecostal preacher. Working as a stock boy at Home Depot. Hit the $31 million jackpot back in 1997. At first, life was good with Billy Bob. Buying a ranch, six other homes, some new cars. Like many others who win the lottery, he was unable to simply say no when people asked him for a handout. Later in life, he divorced his wife and eventually committed suicide. The stress apparently too much to handle for this lottery winner. These are just some examples of people who have hit the jackpot. And we're reminded of that scripture in 1 Timothy 6 where it talks about how the love of money is the root of all evil. And many have, have pierced themselves and shipwrecked their faith because of what money can do, what possessions can do, what, what the desire of just wanting more and more and more and more apart from the motivation of God in their lives. And we see, brothers and sisters, that this is what the Bible says what wealth really brings. And we might think, well... I'm immune to that. We're not immune to it. I'm definitely not playing the lottery. Yeah, I'm not going to play it. Amen. Let's move on. Let's finish out. 
Let's finish out. So that we know that what, what we hope wealth will bring, it's not going to bring us the eternal satisfaction that we need in our lives. What wealth really brings, we see the danger that wealth brings. What the Bible tells us is, is really what's going on, the truth about it. Lastly, what does God want me to do with my money? Number one, be grateful. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 19. In the Good News Version, if God gives a man wealth and property, he should be grateful and enjoy what he has worked for. It's a gift from God. Be, be grateful for what you have. Don't, don't be un, unhealthy and lusting for more and you wish you had it and that drives you to frustration. It drives you to worry. It drives you to you know, do things that are ungodly. But really, be grateful. If you've got a home that you're living in, be grateful. If you've got some clothes, two pairs of underwear, be grateful. Just be grateful. God wants us to appreciate what we have. Because everything is a gift from God. And you may have worked hard for the money that you have that's come into your life, but remember that God is the one who's given you breath. God is the one that's given you health, strength, and the intelligence to do what you do. It's from God. And be appreciative. Be grateful for what you have. Secondly, be glad. Be glad. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14 says, Enjoy prosperity whenever you can, and when hard times strike, realize that God gives one as well as the other, so that everyone will realize that nothing is certain in this life. God says, Enjoy what you have. Be glad. Be happy with what you have, what God has given you. And I like what it says here. You've got to notice that he says, God gives you good times and bad times. God actually allows good times to happen in your life and then hard times to come into your life. And why does he do that? Because he wants us to realize that nothing in this world is for certain. And when you have bad times in your life and you have tough times economically, financially, thank God... Because He's going to pull you through it. He's going to pull you through it. But it's a reminder for you and all of us that nothing in this world is certain. And that's why you go through good times and you go through hard times. God's in control. He is in full control. Because if you put your trusted money, it's going to disappoint you. So He gives you times of plenty and times of poverty. Be glad when you have money. Happiness isn't whatever you want. Happiness is enjoying whatever you have. What you have right now, be happy. Be glad. Be so grateful to God for what He allows you to have. I hope you're happy. I hope you're glad.
I believe every one of us wants financial freedom in our lives. I think we would love that. Financial freedom is not having more money. It's having fewer wants. If you can learn to have fewer wants in your life, you're going to reach happiness a lot faster. You're going to reach it a lot faster. The wealthiest person is the person who is happiest with the least amount. And if you can learn that, you're going to be happy. You're going to be happy in Abidjan. You're going to be happy in Redonda Beach. You'll be happy in the Philippines. You'll be happy in like Antarctica where there's no ESPN or anything like that. You'll be happy because you know where your joy really comes from. Lastly, what does God want me to do with my money? Be generous. Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 in the Living Bible. Give generously for your gifts will return to you later. This has to do with sowing and reaping. Sowing grain in muddy waters and... It gets trampled by the the cattle's feet and it takes root and it takes time. And then later on, it takes root and it grows and it produces a, a plentiful harvest. And that's what God is talking about. It's the principle of giving, sowing now. And later on, you're going to reap a harvest. What God is talking about is building our spiritual investment in heaven. 1 Timothy 6.19 that Steve read earlier. The Bible talks about how we need to command the rich to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation to the coming age. Somehow, as people here on earth, we can actually lay a spiritual treasure there up in heaven. How do we do that? God tells us. We give. We give now as people who are committed to living for Him. We live a life of a giver. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. And if we learn to be the greatest giver we can possibly be, that is what it means. And I'm not talking about our weekly contribution. I'm talking about who we are as people. We give up our time. We give up our possessions. We give up our money because we understand where we're going eternally. We're going to be with God in heaven. And when we're there, I don't believe we'll have any regret, but we'll probably realize, wow, I could have done more while I was here on earth. I could have done more. I could have given more. I could have stayed up more. I could have pleaded more with someone. I could have appealed more to my friends. I could have begged my family more to read the Bible. I could have done a lot of things. And I believe God has us here now on earth to learn these lessons. Because one day our day is going to be over here on earth. That's it. We will all pass. And there will not be another day that we can work for the Lord. We are not here and put here on earth to amass treasures for ourselves. But to let treasure pass through us. And back... Back to people. Back to the purposes of God. Don't hoard the wealth. Don't store it up in a barn. 
God owns those mutual funds. He owns those retirement accounts. Those things, He owns it all. He owns all our gadgets. He owns all our cars, our houses, whatever we've got. God owns it all. But let treasure pass through us. So we can be people who are givers with what we've got. You know, suppose that Congress passed a law that in the next 12 months, the Japanese yen would become the official currency of America. That would mean that the U.S. dollar would become worthless at some point. And let's say that Congress says, um, okay, we're actually not going to tell you the exact date that this transition or this exchange will take place. Because on that day that that transition takes place where the dollar turns into the yen, there's no more trading in. No more trading in. So, since the dollar would become worthless, and we know this in the next 12 months, but you don't know the exact day of this transition, what would your strategy be? Buy in now! Buy in now. That's right. I, I would take all my American dollars and trade it in. I would trade it in for yen. Because at some point, my dollars will become worthless. Now, I'd probably want to keep a little bit of American dollars to help meet my daily needs. So I just have enough. Because when that day of transition comes, I don't want to be caught with millions of dollars that I can't trade in. Because I'm out. I'm totally, totally out. You know, Jesus says the exact same thing to us. It's going to happen to us related to our wealth and eternity. Because one day our time on earth is going to be up. And you don't know when that day of transition is going to take place. We don't know. We don't know. It could take place in the next 12 months. It could take place in the next two years. But in eternity, the wealth you had here on earth is going to be Worthless. It will be worthless. And even if you leave a lot of American currency for your families, it will ultimately be worthless for them too. It will ultimately be worthless. The only way that what you have right now can start counting for eternity is for you to begin converting it to the economy of heaven. This is what's called storing up treasure in heaven. Do we see this? Now what we have is all from God. If we're smart, knowing where we're going, why don't we just start trading it in? Trading it in for heavenly, heavenly treasure. Heavenly treasure. And we become a giver. And we realize that 
what we have here in this world, whatever nation we live in, the things of this earth are never going to eternally satisfy our needs. How do you store up treasure in heaven? I believe two ways. Number one, you begin using what you've got now for God's purposes. And I love our church. I've seen much sacrifice go on in our church over the last couple decades. Many of you have continued to sacrifice in your life. And I want to encourage all of us that we will continue sacrificing for good causes. We will continue giving up our monies and our possessions for the cause of Jesus Christ. To win more souls, to plant more churches, to help the church expand and grow. We cannot lose that dream. And we cannot turn to the world to look to be satisfied for our fulfillment. We cannot let ourselves root ourselves in this world. We've got to fight hard not to give in to the temptations of sunny Southern California. But we've got to be mobile. You can't plant roots in this world. You can't set up shop. You can't build your own little kingdom. You've got to stay mobile. You've got to stay loose. You've got to stay free to be used by God. So not only do you begin using what you've got now for God's purposes, you begin sharing generously when people, when people in need. And that's why I'm, I'm excited that as a fellowship, we are either revisiting the crown financial principles or we're learning some of these for the very first time because we are being taught how to get out of debt, how to make a budget, how to live on less. Guys, those are all great things. Those are all fantastic things that's going to help our lives now and forever. It's going to be something that you can help your kids with. I'm so excited. Our oldest son, he's a junior in college. He got a job at Wells Fargo this summer. And he's not that he's even a financial guy. But he just got a job. I'm so thankful. He said, talked to him on the phone, Dad, I think this job's really going to help me understand finances. I said, yes, it will. Yes. Thank you. Finish college as fast as you can, son. Finish it. Finish that race. Don't look back. Don't put your hand to the plow. Just finish that race and run with all your zeal through that graduation day. We need a systematic... We need to be organized with how we manage our finances. If, you're gonna, if, you're, if your house is going to be in order, you need to have some kind of system that's going to work for you. It's organized. It's together. And God has His own system. It's called, it's called giving. In the Old Testament, it was called tithing. You know, you give up a tenth of your agriculture here and you know, chickens and crop and things here and there. And that's, that's what tithing was all about in the Old Testament. It was a tenth. That's, that's what it was. The first fruits. And, and in the New Testament, we find that the emphasis is not solely on a tenth. It's on sacrifice. That our giving needs to be a flow from our hearts. It should be liberal. It should be uh, abundant. It should be, you know, there's no maximum, there's no minimum. God doesn't say those things. We, we should be free to give because we know where we're going. But unless we have a budget or something that's organized, we can become irresponsible. And, and we need to be responsible with what God has given us. I want to end our time this afternoon 
by seeing a very sober clip, a movie clip, from a Steven Spielberg movie called Schindler's List. And there have been many atrocities in our world, whether it be nations going to war against other nations or people killing their own people. But Schindler's List is based on a true story of a Nazi Czech businessman named Oscar Schindler who uses Jewish labor to start a factory in Poland. And as World War II progresses and the fate of the Jews becomes more and more clear, Schindler's motivation switch from profit to human sympathy. And he's able to save over 1,100 Jews from death in the gas chambers. And this clip that we're going to see is near the end of the movie. As the people are being set free. And he has conversations with one particular Jewish man. And Oscar Schindler just starts taking inventory of of what he has. A ring, a pen, a car, a pen. And how if he were just to have exchanged those earthly possessions, it would have bought more souls. It would have purchased more souls to be saved. And when we view this clip, I want you to think about what God has given you. I want you to think about what He wants you to do with it. I want you to think about how much God has given you and how you have the ability to help change the world one person at a time. Because what God has given you is enough. It's enough to radically change this world for Jesus Christ. Let's watch this clip.